um, in, in the 17th century, uh, English poet John Milton published, uh, well, what became his, his magnum opus called uh, Paradise Lost. It's, a, it's an epic poem celebrated often as one of the greatest works of uh, English literature, Paradise Lost. And in, in the first book, um, is the first book of, uh, of, of this poem, um, book is something like an extended section or quite a long chapter, anyhow, of this poem. He, he explains the purpose of his poem as an attempt to justify the ways of God to men, right? So, so this poem is, is, based, is ba basically based around the, the biblical story of Adam and Eve and their creation and, 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 and how Satan came into the garden and uh, the expulsion from the garden, as well as God's promise of redemption. Uh, and so this poem is, 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 is based around that. And um, Milton says, listen, I write this poem um, on the fall, if you want, to attempt to uh, justify the ways of God to men. Well, in, in Genesis chapter 3, I don't know if you could say that Moses' purpose is ultimately to, to justify the ways of God. He, he certainly, Moses, wants to teach us the ways of God. And he wants to teach us that the ways of God are just. He, he wants to teach us um, that this God is, is just, as, as Moses says somewhere else in, his, in, his, uh, in, his, uh, in the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy chapter 32, he says, ascribe greatness to our God so on, but because his ways are justice, he's just. Um, Moses wants to tell us that. He wants to tell us that God's ways are just. He wants to tell us that we can understand something about God's nature by looking at his judgments, right? And so um, for a, a significant portion of Genesis chapter 3, Moses deals with the subject of God's judgment, God's justice, how God judges sin. Of course, we've said always that chapter 3 of Genesis is not merely paradigmatic. It is. That is, it doesn't simply tell us a pattern of how God acts. It does tell us something about that. That's not all it does. Um, it, it's actually a story, not simply about something that we could apply to us. It's, it's actually a story about us. So what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is not simply how God might judge in a given situation, if we were in a given situation, but how God has judged us in Adam. And so that understanding what happens to Adam and Eve here in Genesis chapter 3 is also about understanding what is and has happened, or what has and is happening to us, what has happened to us, what is happening to us. And so it's important for us to take these um, these, uh, these first few chapters of Genesis, it's important, to take, important for us to take this chapter um, seriously. And so we, we come to this second, this, this, this second significant section of Genesis 3, where Moses is telling us about how God is judging humanity for sin. And that already indicates something, that Moses does not think, like we often do today, that the consequences of sin are simply the result of man suffering um, some abstract principle of cause and effect, right? So, so, so Moses does not think that the consequences of sin are 
just the fact that sin brings with it its own punishment. What, what people might refer to today as, as karma. You know, you put bad energy into the world, you put negativity into the world, and that negativity will come back to you. No, actually, Moses, Moses is not simply telling us that when Adam and Eve eat the fruit from the tree, that the whole world just begins to dissipate around them. He's telling us that the whole world begins to dissipate around them because God is judging them. Right? So it's God who judges us. It's God who punishes. This is actually something more fearful because it reminds us that we're not even in control of our judgment. I don't know if you've heard people say sometimes that they don't believe in eternity, heaven, or hell because this is their hell. Right? Uh, You know, I don't believe in no hell. This is hell for me. It it, it, it sounds nice. It sounds uh, impressive. Um, but, but actually the Bible tells us that that's not how you determine what, ju- what judgment is. God judges personally so that I'm not disputing that this life could have been a hell for you. What I'm saying is God has determined that there will be another hell. So run to Christ now so that you don't have to live through two hells if you want. There is a personal judgment of God that we cannot avoid. Right? Um, God's judgment is as a result, and judgment for human beings is as a result of God's active words spoken. God speaks his judgment. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 3. And just like every word God speaks, he is faithful to fulfill it. We, it's all well and good, right? We like to say God is able to do whatever he says he will do. He's going to fulfill all of his promises. Well, those promises include promises to judge, as we're going to see in chapter Three of Genesis, that God promises judgment. And so we must take these verses seriously. We must realize that um, if God has promised to judge the world, if God has promised judgment, um, where do we stand? Are, are we going to, are, are, we, are, we, are we those who will have to face that judgment? Are we those who are going to be destroyed under God's judgment? Or will we cling on to God's promises of blessings? And there is something good, though, however, about that. There is something good about the fact that God's judgments are not simply, or the judgments in Genesis chapter 3 are not simply the result of principles or energy. Because you can't quite communicate with energy and principles. You can't beg energy for mercy. You can't beg principles to have mercy. If, 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 If the judgments in Genesis 3 were simply about principles being set in place, then we would have to end the sermon this morning on a note of hopelessness. The hope we actually find, and which I think is present in the character, although admittedly there's a heavy emphasis on God's judgment, but there is hope in this, in this, in this, in this passage, and the hope we find comes because the judgments that are being poured out upon humanity because of this sin are the judgments of a person. And this person is gracious. And this person is good. So it's possible that we can plead with this person. It's possible that we can plead with this just God. We can plead with this God who is angry with sin and find mercy. And of, of, of course, the, the, the amazing story of the Bible and of Genesis 3 as well is that God does find a way to make sure that he is both just and merciful. So that's, that's, um, 
So I say that just by way of, of introduction. But we, we will come to look then at this, um, these judgments of God and, and what it supplies to us as far as um, understanding uh, the story of the four and, and how Christians have understood this passage and how we should understand it and how it, how it affects uh, the message of the gospel, how it, uh, why it provides the foundation for this message that we preach uh, of the gospel and, and what we believe about God's word and, and why we're here, some, you're here listening to this word and holding on to it. What are you holding on to? Well, we're going to see some of that again in chapter 3 of Genesis. And uh, I want to show you that as we look at God in action, right, God, God acting in, 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 in justice, um, in justice, as we, as we look at that, I, I want to highlight three, three things. This is in general. Uh, so if you remember last week, we looked at verses 1 to 7. And this, 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 this week, we're looking especially at verses 8 to 24. Those, those verses essentially cover um, the, the, the Genesis 3's um, account of how God judges. And I want to break those verses, eight, verses 8 to 24, into three, 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 uh, three headings. And these three headings essentially cover the vital, if you want, um, movements in the narrative, the, uh, the, the, the vital changes, when there's a change of scene. They cover that. They cover those. They, they, these headings cover that. So we want to take those, those uh, changes uh, seriously, take those changes and make them our guide to understand what's happening in the rest of Genesis chapter 3. In verses 8 through to 13, then, we have this first movement, uh, which, I, which, I, which, I, which, which I've, I've said is, is God in his justice declaring humanity guilty. So we look firstly at the fact that humanity is found to be, is declared guilty by, by God. So humanity guilty and ashamed. Second movement we'll then look at is in verses uh, 14 through to 24, where God um, condemns humanity. After humanity is found guilty, humanity is, is, is cursed and condemned. Right, uh, curses. There's God's God's cursing and God's condemning in 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 justice. That's the punishment for the guilty. And lastly, the, the final movement in chapter in, in the rest of chapter three is is uh, um, is is how we see. Sorry, final thing I want to show you. Anyhow, is how um, God is is gracious in His justice. Right, so verses uh, verses eight to twenty-four remind us that God is just and God judges. Uh, but the last thing I want to show you is that actually, right through running through this story about judgment, running through this testimony about judgment, is the grace of God side by side, grace and justice. So that God not only not only declares humanity guilty, God not only punishes humanity, but He also displays his grace in his justice. So firstly, then, we look at the fact that man is declared guilty. Adam and Eve, we know, have sinned. Um, after eating of the tree, they have been, they, they've already seen uh, that the, the response is, to say the least, underwhelming. They've already been shocked uh, into the reality that actually this was not a wise decision to have made. Um, and then after seven verses of only hearing the voices of the creatures, 
uh, only hearing the voices of the serpent, only hearing the voice of Eve. Adam, of course, is silent, but his silence speaks volumes. After only hearing their voices, um, as though God was absent. Of course, he's not absent. Um, He's very, very present. God finally arrives on the scene. And um, Adam and Eve will finally come face to face with the God against whom they have sinned. Uh, There's an interesting change in how God is addressed, actually. And we could have spoken about this um, in the past few weeks. But... um, And you'll be able to see just in your English versions that from verse 8 onwards, when God is is speaking and when God is addressed, the divine title, I think, in in many of our English versions um, becomes the Lord God. God starts to be addressed as the Lord God. Prior to that, in those... In the first, verses, first seven verses, when Satan is speaking about God, when, when Eve is speaking about God, it's just God. Um, and actually, just quite quickly, the, the, the subtle difference in those statements is when you read the entirety of the, of the Torah, at least, or the first five books of, of, of the Bible, you, you realize that the Lord God, that, that, that way of referring to God, that title for God, is actually a way of um, speaking about the, 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 the God with whom Israel had come into covenant. It was almost as though that reflected the, the fact that we meet the true God from verse 8 onwards, whilst in verses 1 to 7, Adam and Eve with the serpent have been thinking about God in, 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 in ways that shown they had been misled. Satan was not speaking about the true God. Now, the true God arrives on the scene, speaking for himself. And interestingly enough, Genesis does not immediately tell us that God is arriving in judgment, even though we, we probably should anticipate that, um, that that would be the clear implica- implications, I'm sure, for anyone reading uh, the Torah. But, but the emphasis of, of Genesis initially from verse 8 is that God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Historically, Christian commentators have seen that as being an indication that uh, there was, prior to the sins of Adam and Eve, they enjoyed sweet fellowship with God, right? Um, so, so God is walking in the garden of the cool of the day. Um, and initially, then, it's not obvious that, the, that that's for judgment. It's God walking in the garden. Um, but Adam and Eve are hiding. That's the first sign we get that this is a judgment scene. It's the first sign we get that these folks are guilty, is that they are hiding. Right? Not only have they tried to hide their nakedness in verse 7, but now they're trying to hide from God. And that's what guilt does. That's what, else, that's what sinfulness does. That's what having this weight that all humanity now carries with itself. The, the, the guilt of, of knowing that we're not right with God makes us try to hide from him. It's what shows that we're guilty. And guilt, guilt is the language of justice. Right? Guilt is the language of justice. And so what really tells us that we're in a judgment scene here is not even initially that God begins to speak and act as judge, but these guys are trembling because they're guilty. And friends, that's even true of us today. 
It's true of all of Adam's posterity that our guilt makes us hide from God. Right? You, you, you will not believe the attempts that men and women go through to try and hide from God. Hide from conversation with him. Hide from coming to church. Why do you think it's so hard for you to invite that your friend to come to church? It's because men and women are hiding from God. Why do you think it's so difficult? Even now it's so difficult for you to get some of your family members to watch a live stream, to click on a live stream, even in the convenience of their home. You know, during the pandemic, I remember when, when the lockdown started, we were actually, a lot of Christians were actually saying, oh, wow, there's great opportunity here. Because finally, we might get people to listen to the sermons because obviously it's in the convenience of their homes and you can just send them a, a URL and obviously and, and there's not that many hindrances. Why, why, why do we speak like that? Because we know that man cannot wait but to set up obstacle after obstacle so that he can hide from God. It's why people don't want to speak about God. And you know what? We can, we can, we can attempt all kinds of sophistication. We can try like Adam to rationalize the reason. When God says... Um, to Adam in verse 9, where are you, Adam? Where are you? Adam says, initially doesn't say, oh, I'm hiding from you because I'm guilty. He says, oh, oh, I heard your voice. I heard you moving in the garden, as it were, and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid myself. Adam's point being, my hiding is, 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 is rational. I'm not hiding from God because of guilt. I'm not hiding from God because he's just and I'm unjust. He's righteous and I'm unrighteous. He's good and I'm evil. I'm hiding from God because, you know, I was afraid. And he attempts to rationalize his fear of God. He attempts to rationalize this hiding from God. No different to how his children today, us, we attempt to hide from God. We attempt to rationalize our hiding from God. Oh, oh, it's not that I don't want to study the Bible or listen to sermons, but, you know, religion is the most divisive thing in the world. Religion has caused so much harm. You know, know, I just want tolerance. So many attempts to rationalize what is really just guilt, knowing that God God will expose me. That's what Adam was hiding from. That's what we try to hide from. But of course, we can't hide from God. We can't hide from God. Um, it, it was a sad thing to know that the same garden that God had given Adam to protect, he now attempts to use to protect himself from God. It's the foolishness of sin. But there's no hiding from God, and, and God's word will always expose us. That's what happens here. God's word exposes Adam. Adam is hiding in the meantime, and then God speaks. Adam, where are you? Adam, who told you you were naked? God's word exposes Adam. Adam is exposed. Right? And of course, when God asks all these questions, it's not because he doesn't know. It's because he wants man to confess. He wants to convict him. He wants to convict man to the point where he may confess his sin. Maybe Adam will at least display some sincerity. And even today, is that not how God moves with human beings? That's why God wants you to hear the gospel and hear the word. That's why very often 
The gospel is so convicting. Faithful preaching is convicting because this is how God moves men to sincerity. Maybe they might come to the place where they just confess that actually I, I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm guilty. I'm guilty before a holy God. Unfortunately, Adam is only going to present this great obstacle that there always is to fellowship with God. And that is the making of excuses. Rather than just confess his sins against God, Adam begins to make excuses. Adam says in verse 10, verse, sorry, verse 12, when God asks him if he has disobeyed his word, Adam says, okay, I have sinned against you. Okay, I am guilty, but there's a reason I am guilty. It's because of what? It's because of the woman. It's the woman you gave me. Right? There's two things there, right, for Adam there. He's, he's both saying, one, that the woman is the, the result of his sin, but he's ultimately saying that God is the result of, this, of his sin. Um, this is what sin has, has done. is certainly twisted Adam. Adam cannot see clearly. He's now perverse, perverse enough to say that God's goodness is the reason. God's goodness is the cause of his own wickedness. He's perverse enough to say that. And he also, not only in his guilt against God does he attempt to blaspheme God, he also clearly rejects the woman, his woman. I've heard it said, and, and um, actually uh, Milton in his, in his famous poem attempts to suggest the same as well. He has a stanza where he, he quite beautifully explains why, why Adam eventually eats the fruit. He quite beautifully explains how uh, Adam, so in love with Eve, so desperate to hold on to her, in fact, willing to die for her, in fact, almost in a heroic fashion, decides to go, because he's not deceived, but he decides to go out along with Eve and eat the fruit because he loves her dearly. If there is, there's many reasons to think that that's not true, but if there's any, anything to indicate that that was far from the case, is how quickly Adam is ready to reject Eve. How quickly Adam is ready to, to, to throw, her, throw her under the bus, right? Because that's the evidence we get that this was never from a place of love that he ate the fruit in that first place. And uh, even today, men and women know that, don't they? Uh, that, uh, listen, sisters, a guy will say to you that the reason why he wants to lead you into sexual immorality is because of how much he loves you. Right? We're not married yet, but let us, let's, let's, uh, let, let's disobey God. Let's enjoy the gift of sexuality before, the gift of sex before marriage, before married, because it's just how much I love you. No, it's how much he's lusting for you. It's the lust. It's not love that makes him do that. And vice versa, right? It's not love, it's lust. And as soon as the lust is satisfied, you can be sure that, uh, that, that hatred will come seeping in. Adam rejects his wife. Eve as well. Eve is no better. She, she, um, she attempts to make excuses as well for 
she attempts to make excuses as well for why she does what she does. God doesn't even grace Adam's response with an answer. Adam, why did you eat? She told me to do it, and you gave it to me. God doesn't even answer because his, 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 his false response is his own indictment. Eve is no better, though. Eve says, uh, it's the serpent that made me do it. Excuses rather than admitting. God's silence, you know, in fact, the next thing that we read is how God begins to judge. His silence is his way of saying to Adam and Eve that they are guilty. They're guilty. And actually, Adam and Eve, the reason why you are hiding is because of your guilt. The reason why you're so ashamed to appear before God. Dare I say the reason why you're so ashamed to appear before each other is your guilt. Remember, Genesis paints a picture where prior to their sin, Adam and Eve are both happy to be naked together. They're naked together. There's no shame. Now they've sinned and they're ashamed. They're ashamed. They're not just ashamed before God. They're ashamed before each other. It's because of your guilt. Brothers and sisters, let me say to you that the greatest source of shame that we face today is our guilt before God. This is our real shame. This is what really causes us shame, is that we are guilty before God. And this is the reason that just like Adam and Eve, we start to make our own fig leaves, whatever they are, but they cannot cover the fact that we are dealing with guilt before God. Right? Some of us have been wearing masks way before COVID. Whatever the mask is, uh, the mask of wealth, intellect, makeup, plastic surgery, all masks. We tend to cover our shame. So concerned about what people think about us. Some of us are so unconcerned about what people think about us because we're still trying to cover our shame. Because we just have no rest. There's no peace. Nowhere where we can be free to be who we are because if we are who we are, we're guilty. If we really be who we are, all we are is guilty at the end of the day. When all the applause is done, when all the respect is done, we're just guilty before God. And that's why only God can truly cover our shame. That's why only the Christian is truly free from shame. If you're familiar with gospel singing, you'll know that so often Christians have lauded and have proclaimed how Jesus Christ died to cover our shame. Why? Because he covers our guilt. So David says in our psalm, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. David said, there was a time when just like the rest of the world, I kept silent. I didn't confess my sin. I held on to it. I tried to cover my guilt. And he says it was death-inspiring, death-inducing until I confessed and I acknowledged my sin. True freedom in this life, true liberty, true free freedom from shame comes from knowing that Jesus Christ washes away our sin. So rather, rather, from, rather than trying to flee away from God, which you cannot do, Rather than trying to flee from God, you flee to him. You know, friends, that's, that's where true liberty and peace of mind comes from. Knowing that the God of the universe is not ashamed of me. Imagine that. When you know that, Christ is not ashamed of me. Well, you could care less what others think of you. You could care less what shame people heap on you. Because you know Christ is not ashamed of you. And he's not ashamed of you, not because you have to pretend to be something else. 
You know what it's like to be part of a friendship group. You know what it's like to be respected by people just because you're pretending, because they don't know the real you, because you're defined by some, some, some gift you have, some wealth you have. That's how they define you, but you know that's not who you are. The real you is guilty. The, the real you is broken, is sinful. The real you is falling away, is falling apart, just like everybody else. The, the, the real you is heading towards God's judgment seat. And I tell you that's where the fear comes from. I tell you that's where the shame comes from. Jesus Christ died to take our guilt. We're righteous now because he took on our guilt. We're declared righteous because he died for the guilty. And oh, the freedom that comes from that. But Adam and Eve are declared guilty. God declares them guilty. That's the first thing we see. Secondly, we see from then, verses 14, right to the end, actually, is a declaration of how God judges and condemns. Right? And, and what, this, what this reminds us of just right away is that we must never deny that for, 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 for sinners... For guilty sinners, there is ultimately divine justice. There is justice. God, 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 God is just. And we'll see quite clearly that the purpose of God's judgments here are not, pay attention, to reform the sinner. That's not what God is concerned about here. God is not putting out these judgments here because he wants to reform the sinner. These are retributive. God is punishing Right? God is punishing sinners. That's why I'm always nervous when I hear any kind of policy making, any sort of idea, philosophy of justice that wants to almost place, pun sorry, almost place justice solely in the idea of reform. Solely there. You know, every, everyone becomes someone that is, or every crime, every sin becomes a kind of crime that just needs a punishment that is there to reform them. People want to take out the sting of punishment, the sting of retribution. And sometimes I'm afraid it's a way of trying to hide away from the fact that God will punish us for our guilt. This is real punishment. You see, the punishment, the, 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 the justice that the Bible knows about here is one that is not meant to reform, is meant to glorify divine justice, is meant to glorify the justice of the divine, is meant to satisfy God's holy anger for sin. It's punishment. And this is what God is saying to all of humanity and all of creation. These are judgments that will resound for as long as the world exists. Oh, brothers and sisters, as Christians, we must, we must make it very clear to the world that we believe that these, this, this, is a, this is a state of affairs. God has judged the world. It, we're not getting better. The world is not, we're not evolving in, in some right direction. No, God has judged this world. God has declared the world guilty. We are guilty. And so God has punished his world. We're living in a cursed world. Now, I should say that now, of course, the judgments are in three stages. As God, as God punishes, he, he judges the serpent, then he judges the woman, then he judges the man. But I should say that he doesn't actually curse the man and woman. At no point does God curse them. He curses their existence, if you want. So, so the serpent is cursed, the ground is cursed, but Adam and Eve are not actually themselves personally cursed. They just have to live a cursed existence. 
But certainly they are condemned by God's judgments. But let's look at those, let's look at the judgment in those three movements. Firstly, there's God's judging of the serpent. And we will have to we'll revisit verse, verses 15, especially later on, when we start to think of how God's grace is displayed in his justice. But you know, you notice that when it comes to verse 14, when it comes to the, the snake, sorry, the serpent, God never actually, God doesn't discuss things with him. God doesn't, God doesn't say, what, what made you do this? Or why did you do this? He doesn't, he doesn't speak to the snake. It's the first indication that we get that this is more than just a snake. This is God. In the snake, God is dealing with evil. In the snake, God is dealing with the satanic. In the, in the, in the snake, God is dealing with a sworn enemy. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a strange thing going on there where, so for example, in verses 14, God addresses how the snake will become the symbol of judgment. I say that to say, you know, the, the, the snake itself is not, he's not a personal being. It's not like he can take account for what he's done. So when verses 14 tell us that the snake is going to continue uh, slithering and living on his belly for, the, for, its, for its existence. And when, verses, when verse 14 tells us it's going to eat dust all the days of his life. I think what's going on there is that God is using the... So, so this doesn't have to be a suggestion that there was a time when the snake walked on, it walked upright like human beings did. Not necessarily. It may be that what's happening here is that God is taking the picture of the snake's existence and using it to, um, to speak judgment, using, using it to explain what his judgment will be like, using it to explain punishment. So the snake becomes symbolic of God's judgment because he's been used this way in uh, in, 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 he, because he's been used in this sort of deceptive way in Genesis chapter 3. You, you know that in the rest of the, the, the Bible, for example, to eat dust is, is a sign of the, the worst type of degradation and destruction. And that's what the snake becomes. He becomes a picture of that. But ultimately, so he can serve as a symbol of how God is going to destroy evil. And that's what we see in verse 15. Um, and for now, I'll just, I'll almost just read that verse to you and we'll come back a little later and spend just a bit more time on it. But God's judgment to the serpent includes the promise that there will be enmity between the serpent and the woman. Uh, there will always be enmity um, between them until it climaxes in this, this, this battle where the serpent will bruise the heel of the woman's child, but the woman's child will, will, would, would, uh, will crush the serpent's head. So God judges the snake, but, but really symbolic of how God is judging Satan, we say. God also judges the woman. He condemns the woman from here on in this life, and she is the mother of all living, as Adam will tell us. She's the mother of all living. That means everything that applies to her is going to apply for, to everyone that comes through her. And, Adam, and God basically says, and we, 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 we won't go so much into the details, but I think essentially God curses. The, the punishment is that she's, she's condemned, and, and she's condemned to a kind of curse existence where she should flourish the most. She should be, her, her role would be 
would have been epitomized in the bearing of children, for example. But now that experience is cursed. Children are a blessing from the Lord, but the pain of childbearing, perhaps the, the pain of that entire process of birthing a child, because a woman will tell you that the pain of pregnancy doesn't just start at childbearing, at labor, for example. It climaxes there, perhaps, but those nine months could be extremely painful and extremely stressful and, and extremely um, uncomfortable. I know this. I've seen this um, with, with my wife. And, and, and what should have been a blessing now is reminds her of the cursed existence she lives in. She will never know blessing in this life without also knowing that this world is cursed. She'll be reminded, even where there is her greatest blessing, she sees, she's reminded of the curse. That's what this world is going to be like. It's what this world is like. We, 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 we enjoy so many of God's gracious blessings for us, blessings to us, but we're always reminded that this world is, is cursed. But also at home, She's not only just going to face sorrow in childbearing, she'll face sorrow at home. Now, admittedly, the latter part of verse 16 is a difficult verse to interpret. But I think, crucially, most commentators agree that we know that, that, that the, one, the one stanza, the one line that we really understand is the line that says, he shall rule over you. So your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The, the difficult part of that verse is what it means that her desire shall be for her husband. Does it mean that she will, um, she will be wedded to him and, and, and want to please him in a kind of slavish way? Or does it mean that she's going to want to usurp his position as, 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 as head and leader? Well, some might say the history of the, history of the world has, has proven that both those things might be true. But these, what is certainly true is that when the Bible says he will rule over you, the indication is that rather than lead his wife, as he was once called to do, graciously, lovingly, flesh of my flesh, bone of my, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, what will now, what will now um, characterize a relationship is what happens when God says, why did you eat from that tree? And he says, I blame her. He will rule over you. He was once called to love and to cherish her. Now he will dominate her. This is not loving leadership. This is bitter rule. He'll despise her. He'll look down on her. He'll think less of her. There's a sense of disdain there. It's, it's, it's power wickedly used. This will begin to happen at home. The home is cursed now. And our, our world tells a story. This must be why, brothers and sisters, even though the Bible teaches us that marriage is a temporal thing, because the Bible says in eternity there won't be marriage. This must be why there's still such a heavy emphasis and so much time given to reminding Christians of how they should act in marriage. This must be why there's so many verses in the New Testament, for example, teaching us about what marriage should be like, the roles of, 
of, of, of husbands, the roles of wives. Because in the church of Jesus Christ, God is restoring the harmony that was broken by sin. Where, 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 where Christ's redemption blood is flowing, where men and women have been washed from their sin, where God's Holy Spirit is at work, both men and women are, are desirous to see the reverse of this curse. But the woman is judged in her home. She's judged in childbirth. And the husband, the man also is judged where he might be said to find his fulfillment. The, the sort of things that you usually associate with the man's role. Work, for example. For Adam, he is said, he is going to have to endure painful work. Prior to his sins in Genesis, prior to him sinning in Genesis 3, oh, this is a world that would be fruitful and multiply to him. Now, Adam, the, the ground is cursed for your sake. Now, Adam, the, the, the ground would almost begrudgingly produce for you. You just work hard and hard before you get little gains. And you'll spend so much time laboring for these things that your toil will be basically death-inducing. You will work till you die. Your labors would... Now, now this, is not, this is not meant to be some kind of suggestion that before... The, um, before uh, the curse or, or, or before the fall, there was no hard work. No, in one sense, hard work and labor is a beautiful thing. But hard work and labor would not have been, as I say, death-inducing. It wouldn't be the kind of toil that basically killed the man. Now we can, we can, make, we can, we can think of all sorts of ways in which our labor actually kills us. Right? How much working hard age makes a man age. Uh, working hard um, disturbs the, the the flow of of one man's organs. Working hard uh, um, drives a man to the grave. And uh, work is going to become painful. And to Adam, the promise of death is spoken, even though of course it applies to Eve. Adam. You are taken from dust, you will return to the dust. What that means is, no matter how much glory Adam seems, thinks to attain in this world, it's always going to end in death. Ultimately, he's never truly glorious. He's returning to dust. He's always returning to dust. It doesn't matter how much he seems to pretend like it's not the case. Doesn't matter how much glory he seems to attain to, attain to himself, he's returning to dust. God curses Adam, curses Eve. And the final movement of, this, of, of God's condemnation upon them is the banishing from the garden. Verse 22 to 24, God says, the man has become like one of us. He knows good and evil. And so he must not live forever. He must not eat from the tree of life and live from forever in that state. So God drove him out of the garden and set angels there to guard the way. The indication being that man will never be able to return to paradise. And we must, we must say that. We must say that, as I said earlier, that there is no return to paradise for us in this present world. Right? 
there is no return to paradise. When all is said and done, brothers and sisters, we must trace the source of all human problems to God's judgments at the fall. There's no return to paradise. There's secondary causes that we address, but we must never allow the analysis of human problems or the proposed solutions to ever deny this. We must always have in the back of our minds the source of human frailty, the source of human failing, the source of our tragedies in this world is that God himself has judged the world. Because we've, because we've strayed from God, this world is now a fading kingdom. When we're born into it, it meets us with pain, sorrow, fruitlessness, till we finally dissolve in death. And there is no return to paradise. We must have this in our minds as Christians. This is a fallen world. Right? So, so when we see a pandemic, for example, in our world, how do we respond to a, a pandemic? We respond to a pandemic by realizing this is what we should expect to happen in a broken and a fallen world. This is what happens in a world that God has met with judgment. What do we say about death, brothers and sisters? When we see death, do we realize this is the very judgment of God? It's the judgment of God upon the world when we see death. Right? We must not come... We must not fall into the trap that the world falls into and begin to attempt to play down death and play down what death is. Uh, death is not simply just a natural process that all human beings must face. It looks that way. Death is actually a calling to face God in judgment. We must affirm that. So God has cursed and condemned the world. And this world is condemned and cursed as it is. We could almost end the story. We could have ended the story there. That's what Genesis tells us. Man is banished. He's out and there's no way back. There's no way back to paradise. And this world is cursed. But the Bible doesn't end there. And I want to suggest that we have indications that we shouldn't end there in Genesis itself. And this is the last heading. Grace and justice. God in his justice also displays his grace. So yes, we read this account, this full account, how God is judging man for his sin. But I'm saying right there and then, we see God displaying his grace. Right? So the amazing thing about Genesis chapter 3 is all these indications we get that even while man continues to deserve God's judgment, the grace of God is ever present. And this is what makes God's grace amazing. The, 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 the way in which it so beautifully coincides with his justice, that God's grace doesn't undermine his justice. Far from it, it magnifies it. But just before we hone in on Genesis 3.15, consider some of these pictures of grace that already exist in Genesis chapter 3. We already see that it's God that approaches Adam, right? Where are you? God is seeking after him. That seems to be a picture of grace. And when God finds him, he doesn't immediately obliterate him. That is grace. The God who has perfect understanding, who has perfect knowledge, and could have so easily and rightfully destroyed Adam right away, actually gives him audience, allows him to speak, gives him room for confession. That is grace. It would seem that even Adam and Eve 
Understand this. Later on, after God has cursed Adam with the curse of death, oh, sorry, cursed their existence anyhow with the curse of death, Adam calls Eve the mother of all living, as though he was holding on to a promise in what God had said. And I imagine that it's, it's something to do with what is said in, in, in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, that she would need to procreate. And so, although he had promised us that the day we eat this, we will die, we will still be able to live. Somehow his justice will be married to his grace. God clothes Adam and Eve, right? They, they, they're scantily clothed initially, uh, having tried to cover, clothe themselves. God mercifully clothes them. All these indications we have that God is going to be gracious. But maybe primarily, maybe the clearest indication we get is that one in God in Genesis chapter 3.15. That Christians have often referred to as the first gospel, the proto-evangelium. Uh, where God promises, actually, that the woman will somehow, through the woman, there will come victory over the serpent. The serpent had been the source of much of the ruin that had taken place in the Garden of Eden. And God promises the, the woman that one day she will be victorious over this serpent. Or her seed will be victorious for her over this serpent. And this seems to be the clearest indication. The, the, the amazing thing about this, these verses, and Christians, of course, read them as positing the, 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 the reality of a continuing battle between good and evil, between the Lord Jesus Christ's people and Satan. Now, it, it, it may be, and I believe that there absolutely is, there's a statement here of how one day the woman will bring forth a seed that will have victory over evil. The amazing thing is how justice continues to be maintained even there. If that's a statement of grace, and it is, because the woman deserves to be destroyed, they deserve to be destroyed without hope. If it's a statement of grace that one day through the woman, a seed will come that will give victory over the snake. Notice that God's justice, though, is still maintained. This seed that will come and will come through the woman, well, whilst having this seed, the woman is going to have to go through the judgment of childbearing. God's justice is still maintained. This seed is going to come through the union of a man and woman who are already facing the justice of God saying that because of their sin, there will be disharmony between them. God's justice is still maintained. This seed, if he's going to one day have victory over the serpent, is going to have to be fed. Well, Adam is going to have to work. The man is going to have to work till he dies. The kind of work that induces death for this seed to be fed. So even as God is promising that he will raise this seed that will give victory to the woman, his justice is being maintained. In fact, for this seed to be able to restore what Adam and Eve had undone, 
the Bible says that he will have to have his heel bruised. So he will be victorious because he will crush the head of the serpent, but he will first have to suffer judgment of some sort because his heel is bruised. God is maintaining his justice even as he's displaying his grace. But we continue to see that this is a story of grace because in all of this, humanity is passive. The victory that will one day restore this man and, 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 and uh, restore Adam and Eve, the, the, the victory that will one day undo the wickedness of Adam and Eve is a victory that comes not through anything Adam and Eve can do, but through what God himself does. God sovereignly puts enmity between the woman and the serpent, between the woman's serpent, sorry, the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. Humanity is passive. The woman is passive because it's not her that's going to bring victory. It's her seed that will bring victory. The woman is passive because the Bible tells us that children are a gift from God. So ultimately, it's not human beings that bring seed into this world. It's God himself that gives us a gracious gifts. It's also a gracious story, Genesis 3.15, because all this is going to be done vicariously. That means in the woman's place. Right? The seed is going to come and fight for the woman. She won't fight herself. She can't fight the serpent herself. The seed must fight for her. The seed will stand up for her. The seed will be bruised for her. The seed will crush the serpent's head for her. Someone standing in her place. And Christians have, have rightly seen that this is telling us about that true seed of the woman, the seed of the Virgin Mary, the Lord Jesus Christ, who the Bible says is the one that has cast out the prince of this world, who the Bible says was manifested so that he might destroy the works of the devil. The rest of the Bible is the unveiling of how the story unfolds so that eventually the seed of the woman does come and God's justice is maintained because he suffers all the things that Adam and Eve had been condemned to suffer. But he finally destroys the serpent. He crushes the serpent's head and brings victory for all those who belong to the seed of the woman, all those who will trust in him. Interestingly enough, Genesis 3.15 allows us to read both a singular and plural seed. And this is how the seed idea is developed for much of Genesis. Is it a singular seed that will bring victory for the woman, or is it, is it a plural seed? Well, the first part of Genesis 3.15 tells us that God is going to put seed between in plural form, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. It's plural. And we think, and I think we're right to think that right there, the Bible is talking about the church. That the, the victory of the woman's seed, the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ, is also going to be seen fulfilled in the rest of the woman's seed. That is the church. And so Paul can say to the church in Romans 16, that one day the God of peace will crush Satan under their feet. The church of God, the church of Jesus Christ, is the place where the serpent's head is being crushed. 
The church of, of Jesus Christ is the place where men and women are given victory over Satan because they've been translated from his kingdom of darkness into the marvelous light of God's kingdom. The church of Jesus Christ is where God's people experience victory because Jesus Christ has destroyed the works of Satan in them. Right? The church of Jesus Christ is where this is happening. And, and so in one true sense, the church of Jesus Christ is where we see the effects of the fall have been reversed. The church of Jesus Christ is where people move from a cursed to a blessed existence. The church of Jesus Christ is where people move from being condemned to being set free. In the church of Jesus Christ is where God magnifies both his justice and his grace. Let me close by saying this. I believe that in the church and through Christ, all of the curses that we see in Genesis are removed. All of Genesis' curses are removed. Right? And so Genesis speaks about a curse of death. Genesis in indicates the curses of diseases. Genesis indicates the, 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 that, that, that poverty is a curse. And I believe that in Christ, all these curses are removed. So what does that mean for the church? Some Christians have carelessly applied that to say that what that means is, what we often call today a prosperity gospel, that because poverty is a result of the curse, there's no poverty for Christians. Because sickness is a result of the curse, there's no sickness for Christians. And they don't usually say that about death because um, death easily disproves that. But what does that mean? Uh, where have they gone wrong? What does it mean that actually these curses are removed? There's a movement in Genesis that helps us answer that. It's that movement in verses 23 and 24 that reminds us that God drove man out of the garden and then placed angels so that man could never return. The problem with the prosperity gospel is that it's claiming that in Christ redeeming his church, He's returning them to Eden. He's sending them back to paradise. Now, if that was true, if what the gospel promises us is a return to Eden, then actually, yes, it would make sense because Eden is the place where there is no sin, there, sorry, there is no sickness in this world. Eden is the place where there is no poverty in this world. But we're not going back to Eden. There's no return to Eden. The Bible's motion, the Bible's movement is a return away from Eden, but graciously to something even better. So let me read in closing the first two verses of Revelation chapter 1. Sorry, 22. Revelation 22. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, there was a tree of life, which bare 12 types of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. Well, we're not about to uh, look into those verses fully, but I hope you see what's happening there. The tree of life has reappeared, but this time not in Eden, but in this new Jerusalem, in this new city. 
In, in, in restoring his church, Jesus Christ is not taking us back to Eden. He's taking us to something far better. He's taking us to something greater. What the Bible defines as a new heaven and a new earth. So that's why we can say that in Christ, the curse of poverty has been removed and the curse of sickness has been removed. But Christians can still be sick and still be poor because we haven't arrived at this greater destination. Now, yes, in this greater destination, there'll be no sickness, there'll be no sin, there'll be no poverty, but we are heading there. We're not going back to Eden, we're heading there. We're on our way there. And the Christian declaration has always been something like this. Are you walking with us to the new Jerusalem? Are you going with us to this new city? There's no going back to paradise. Some of you this morning are trying to go back to paradise in this world. You're putting in all this work to achieve some legacy. You're putting all this work to achieve wealth. You're putting all this work to achieve some reputation that you think will bring you paradise. There's no going back to paradise. So this, the, world, the Bible can say about this same world that God has, Jesus Christ has promised to redeem. The Bible can also simultaneously say that one day this world will pass away. That one day this world will be destroyed like, like a fire. The, the Bible can also say don't live for the things of this world. The things of this world are passing away. Because in God's judgment, there is no return to paradise. But in the grace of Jesus Christ, we can head to the new city. You know where the new city is? The new city is the place where Jesus Christ dwells. So let me ask you this morning, my brothers and sisters, let me ask you if you're listening to me this morning, are you walking with the church of Jesus Christ? Are you, are you walking in his train? Are you doing the will of God so you know that you will abide forever? Or are you attempting to recover a paradise that God, by his faithful word, has, faithful word, has condemned? There's no return to paradise. We can only go forward to Jesus Christ. So the apostle Peter speaks about Jesus, as, speaks about Christians as those who are coming to him. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, we're coming to him. That's the movement. We're moving away from the fall. We're moving to Christ. Let me call you this morning to move with the church. This world is fading away. This world is passing away. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how hard we try. And it's, it's a wonderful thing to attempt to alleviate pain. But it doesn't matter how much we try. This world is cursed. And it's fading away. It will be destroyed. It's all going to end in death. Only in Christ is there true and eternal life. Uh, let me ask you to come this morning, to come to him, follow him uh, to that new city. Amen.